Yes, hello, Tyler O'Reilly here. Before we start, just wanted to remind everyone of Bazaar Plus, our membership program where you can get extra episodes every week. Just simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. A trophy called the America's Cup. Come and get it. Come and get if it. If you think you're good enough. The hunt for the weirdest. It sounds like you're not doing your research. It does sound like that. <laughs> the problem is I have done it and don't understand. <laughs> Strangers. Designed this ship to comfortably house a cow. Oh, stop it. Cow out the back. Most unbelievable. They launch him across the street by spraying him with the high-pressure hose. Stories to ever occur. Listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for the greatest ever photo. In the world of sport. He actually popularised Gordon as a first name. Which is a tough job. Tough. Sports Bazaar. When the boat sailed, the crew was still nailing down her deck. <laughs> Travelled with five dogs, a cat, a lemur, a raccoon and a monkey called Peggy. And the monkey knew how to sail. They're pirates. So they're pirates. We're getting to... Oh, jeez. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. This is a spa meeting, Mick. Grab your togs. It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar. I'm Mick Malloy. I'm with Titus O'Reilly. Where you left us last time was, I believe, with the birth of the America's Cup. It had been bestowed to the New York Yacht Club. Yeah. This trophy, named it after the yacht that had beat the British. In- by Queen Victoria. By Queen Victoria. So it's now called the America's Cup. And they put out a challenge to the entire world, come and try and win this cup. This come and get it if you think you're it. good enough. Yeah. You know, they want to promote competition, international yeah. racing. And they've got a deed that clearly spells out the rules. It's called a deed of gift. It's with the New York Supreme Court. It's lodged. Yeah. So it's very much like this is the Everyone knows the terms. The Civil War then breaks out in America. Oh, no We're talking 1861 to, you know, 65. Real pesky little war for the Americans. So what happens there? That so. just stops the racing idea. Yeah. Everyone forgets the America's Cup exists. The English and the French are staying out of it. The French get involved, but the English stay out of a lot of the Civil yeah. War. So the idea of racing each other and things like this is just, it's not in anyone's mind. It's on mind. the back burner. So it's been the worst timing. So what we're going to talk about today is it could have just gone away I forgot. at this point. But one race reinvigorated the idea of yacht racing and competition across the Atlantic yeah. uh, between the two countries especially. It's the autumn of 1866. This has race itself has nothing to do with the America's Cup, but it's a lot of the people that are involved in the New York Yacht Club. Yes. Post Civil War. Civil War. This is not yeah. eighteen sixty six. The war's just finished. Bit hazy on the, <laughs> on the Civil, Civil War. War. <laughs> Something about Gettysburg. I don't know. The Confederates well just so you know the South technically lost. Oh no, yeah, they're, well, they're fighting a rear <laughs> We're fighting a rear guard action now. But I don't think it's over to be honest. That's right. It never really ended in a way, uh, but so anyway, technically the war's finished and it's the autumn of 1866. So the war's now in the rear view a bit there, yeah. you know. And a financier, George A. Osgood, and a tobacco baron, which there is always go. good to have a tobacco baron involved, Pierre uh, I was Lauriard, wondering when you were Jr. going to introduce a tobacco baron. <laughs> They're having a very enjoyable dinner, they describe it, at the prestigious Union Club, which is the one Commodore Stevens invented about the same time he invented the Are these the, these the same members of all these clubs? They're all the same They're people. all the same people. Yeah. It's all Just the same club people. to club. It's all the rich people. Now, they're both having this dinner, and while they're having this dinner at the Union Club, the equivalent of billionaires today. So yeah. this is like if Jeff Bezos is having yeah, sure. dinner with Zuckerberg or something, right? It's like that. And they're boasting about the merits of their yachts. And they're saying, who, who do you reckon's faster? What do you right. reckon's got a better yacht? You know, typical bloke stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's they, a pissing competition between rich people. Rich people. And they say, you know what? I think the way we settle this 
is we have a race across the Atlantic, right, for money. So this is two American routes going to race to across to and Britain. back or just across? No, just across. And this is at a time where crossing the Atlantic in a ship is still really dangerous. Yeah. Right? This isn't like a done deal. Now, this creates a huge stir, the idea that they're going to do this because people have never raced across the Atlantic before. Yeah. The America, the yacht, crossed it to go race. To go race, but, but it didn't race. race. It just leisurely went over. Yeah. Racing's a different thing. So this is like racing to the moon or something at the time. This is all the papers and everything say this is amazing. Yeah. We're going to cover this. A 25-year-old guy by the name of James Gordon Bennett Jr., he learns of this race, right? He's only 25 years old but he's very rich and we'll get into his history because he's, he's a character you're going to like. All right. He's desperate to be in it. So he persuades Osgood and, and Laureard to accept his ship. When they made the bet, yeah. did the ships... Exist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They all had these big ships right. and they all like, let's race it and see whose is the fastest. Right. Bennett's got one called the Henrietta and he says, I want to be in it. And so the amount they're betting on this race swells to $90,000 US at the time. That is the equivalent to $15 million US in today's money sure. on this single race. Yeah. So it's winner take all, <laughs> three races. The difference between all of them is James Gordon Bennett Jr. at 25 years old, he's going to be on his ship during the right. race. He's he revolutionary. Yeah, he's, a, he's not like just the backer. He's yeah. like absolutely on it. So they go and they race and the Henrietta with Bennett's ship, it wins the race in 13 days, 21 hours and 55 minutes. Okay. So by it is, much? Yeah, by a couple of days. It's He does really well. And... This means he becomes well-known. James Gordon Bennett Jr. becomes well-known. Sailing suddenly inspires the British are following this race. Everyone gets excited about sailing again as a sport and as a spectacle and all this. Now, James Gordon Bennett Jr., he is a fascinating guy. Now, he's 25 when he wins this race. Yes. His father is well-known in New York circles he had worked in newspaper james gordon bennett senior and at the age of 40 he founded the new york herald in 1835 and it was a paper which became the most widely read in the united states so think of him almost like the rupert murdoch of his era and he was the first to focus on breaking news in real time as fast as possible yes so he was like had reporters that went to the front lines in the civil war and actually were there and sent back as fast as possible breaking the news. So sure. and this was revolutionary. Before that had been sort of newspapers had been like opinion pieces and what people thought or very yeah. like reporting on events months ago. He was like, no, nah, we've got to be fast and first with the news, even if we're not always accurate, he used to say. <laughs> so he was very like the modern. So this it, was, is, it was the introduction of topical Topical news. news and being first and being a newsbreaker yeah. and all that. He was behind all of that. It was the favourite paper of Abraham Lincoln. He read it religiously because it gave the best coverage of the Civil War, he thought. And he often found out first from the the Herald before his generals told him stuff. <laughs> it also introduced a focus on gossip. Yeah. So think of him very much like... We the start all, of tabloid. Tabloid journalists. We all think like, you Jesus. know, this, this internet... Thanks a lot, pal. He came up with a lot of that. He wasn't a hypocrite in a way. He also was quite happy to report on gossip involving him if it sold papers. So, for instance, in one paper edition, he described in great detail his wife's body as well as intimate details of their wedding. 
under a different name? Or no, he did he just quite report? He, he was unlike the press barons of today who are all Stop about their the own secrecy. My wife's hot. Exactly. <laughs> Was there a page three guy? He didn't introduce the page three guy. He, well, he didn't do the, the sort of sketches back then. But <laughs> no, but he was literally, but he wasn't a hypocrite like today's ones that insist on their own privacy and then yeah. report on everyone else. He was quite he happy was to, if it sold a paper, he didn't care. He was not the most beloved bringing in this tabloid journalism. So he sent his son, James Gordon Bennett Jr., who we're going to call Gordon from now on, and he was called Gordon. He decided, I don't want to be known as James Gordon Bennett Jr. because everyone knows my dad. I'll just call myself Gordon. And he actually popularized Gordon as a first name. Which is a tough job. Tough (laughs) job. I wouldn't have thought that was a... Apologies to any Gordon's listening. Yeah, but that's where it comes from as a name. He popularized. So Gordon... Is the gin named after Gordon? I don't think so. But Gordon's educated in France because his dad was so unpopular in New York, he sent (laughs) his family to France. Had to do a runner. But at 16, Gordon decides, I'm coming to New York. He comes aboard a giant yacht that his father bought for him called the Rebecca and he shows up and he becomes immediately the youngest ever member of the New York Yacht Club at 16 years and three months old. Crikey. Now everyone thinks, well, he's shown up because of his daddy's bank account. We have to let him in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He proceeds to basically win almost every race sailing it himself. So he's, he's committed. He's, yeah, yeah. He's like this a, is his thing. He's the second generation, but like most of the ones we've heard in this story so far, they're not the third generation wasters. Yeah, they're they're the second generation that are very competent sure. and build on what the dad's built. Yeah. In 1861, he volunteered his new yacht, the Henrietta, which he goes on to race in the Trans-Atlantic. Yeah. But before that, he volunteers to use it in the Civil War. He gives it to the US Navy as part of the blockade. And then he gets commissioned as a third lieutenant and serves on it. Right. And fights in the Civil War. He patrols Long Island, does all this stuff. And one buddy's involved in capturing part of Florida. So he was a action sure. guy in the Civil War. He then, of course, it enters after the Civil War, the Great Ocean Race, which makes his name. And at 30, he becomes the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club. Youngest at 30. ever. In sailing, he is top notch. Mm. He builds the most expensive racing and luxury cruise ships for himself. Yes. The most indulgent of these was the Listriata. It cost $17.8 million in today's money. Yes. It had a room on it that featured a large electric fan for cooling purposes. The reason was it was designed, this is this giant luxury Mm. ship, to comfortably house a cow (laughs) so he could have fresh milk, cream and butter (laughs) while it's Possibly meat. Depending on how it goes. <laughs> how good is that? He goes, I want He's got a fresh cow milk. out the back. He's got a cow in a specially built room with a fan to call it. I love that. He then also on the ship of his it had numerous rooms for all the crew and the guests. He had three personal suites on different decks on the ship so he was wouldn't have to walk too far to get to his quarters. So it was like he's on the top deck. He's like, I don't want to go all the way down. To, I'll go to this or room. if he's down the bottom one, he's had three rooms, like big quartz of suites. Not just quartz, like a room, a suite. Surprised he didn't have three cows. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Where am I? Some don't do we have to walk up for a glass <laughs> of cool milk. This is like, you know, you got to remember this is 1870s. He also had an automobile that he would have. One of the first ever automobiles was on this ship. On the ship. 
And so he once showed Why? up. Well, so he when he like got wherever he got. Dark, he could drive off the ship. That's the equivalent of these tossers who have a helicopter. In 1906, he shows up to Bermuda and in his ship and gets off in the car. It's the first ever car driven in Bermuda. Oh, this is unbelievable. He's, <laughs> he's Commodore as a 30-year-old, but yes. he, he was exceptionally good at promoting the New York Yacht Club. And this is what becomes important for the America's Cup. Right. In 1867, when he's a young man, he's... Dad says, I'm retiring. His dad's like, I've had enough. I've got money. Why am I working? You're the editor of the Herald now. You own it. So Gordon is now owning the Herald as well as being the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club. So suddenly the club's board meetings become front page news. (laughs) And he just uses, it's the largest. to promote his Yacht Club. Yeah, it's the largest read newspaper in America. And so it is everything the Yacht Club does is front news. And this becomes where the America's Cup suddenly gets Becomes promoted. a big deal. Yeah, because it's got the media backing now. Now, he becomes a genius at promoting this paper too. His dad had made it a big paper. Gordon takes it to the next level, right? He, in 1869, funds Henry Morton Stanley on a journey into Africa to discover where David Livingston has disappeared to, which right. leads to the famous quote, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Wow. He paid for that whole trip, which is now yeah. famous. It was front page news. He played it so he got the exclusive account of the progress yes. across Africa. And this is when it was seen as like deep as dark as Africa. Yeah. When Stanley met Dr. Livingston and said, Dr. Livingston, I presume, he was apparently carrying the New York Yacht Club flag. <laughs> Another time... Uh, Gordon ran on the front page of the Herald a story about a mass breakout of wild animals at the Central Park Zoo in 1874 with the animals rampaging around town causing death, mutilations, mayhem in the street. He described it in the paper in great gory detail. The front page headline that day read, A shocking Sabbath carnival of death, savage (laughs) brutes at large, awful combats between the beasts and citizens. Right, this is a media sensation that all the animals in the zoo have gotten out yeah. and done this. Of course, none of it have actually happened. <laughs> oh, dear, idea. Oh he had in the back of the paper a little thing that said, "None of this happened. It's just to show what could happen if the lax caging standards at the zoo at the time continue." <laughs> it's a hypothetical. It's all hypothetical, but he doesn't let it know until the last paragraph wow. of the whole thing, right? Yeah. But it sells a lot of papers, right? It sells heaps of it's papers. War of the Worlds. Yeah, it's War of the World before War of the World. Uh, so people are like, "It's incredible." He also uses sport to promote the paper. Apart from yachting, he organised the first polo match in the United States. Good on him. He paid for the English polo team to come over to teach them. He helped found the Westchester Polo Club, um, which is the first polo club in America. He organised the first known professional tennis in the United States. He established the Gordon Bennett Cup for international yachting and the Gordon Bennett Cup for automobile races. He funded the Gordon Bennett Cup for ballooning, which continues to this day. Unbelievable. Now, this is where you're going to really love him. Yep. While he served as Commodore for a long time, he earned the nickname the Mad Commodore due to his drunken exploits. Right? Yes. Now, where this becomes interesting is like his father, he was all too happy to do, put into these papers hit stories of his own misdeeds and even play them up. <laughs> he was up for it. And so there's an element here where, you know, there's sort of like the idea with Bruce Wayne in the Batman movies. He yes. acts like in day he's this like idiot billionaire. Yes. Because secretly he's Batman, right? Gordon is like that. 
Yeah. I'll play up my drunken antics yeah. and make myself look like an absolute fool. Yes. But meanwhile, he's the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club. Yes. He owns the most powerful media thing. He's inventing sports. He's making a fortune. He's doing all this amazing stuff. Like me. Pretend to be a drunken buffoon, yeah. but in reality, reading doing a lot of serious work. A lot of reading Russian literature yeah, in, right. in the original language. <laughs> I'm sorry I've let people know about that. Cat's out of the bag. <laughs> but a lot of the stories are true, but some of them we kind of don't know how much are true. Right. But they're fun to tell anyway, so we're going to tell them. One of his favourite things was to ride his personal carriage, you know, horse and carriage, around the streets of New York at breakneck speeds in the middle of the night completely nude. <laughs> This wasn't a rare occurrence. It was said that this was his favorite hobby apart from sailing. (laughs) (laughs) The ocean was good for him, really. (laughs) He's doing all this now. It's not the safest thing, and occasionally he'd crash it. Most notably, there was a time, and this all got reported as well. This time he was fully clothed, but there was a young American beauty. Jenny Jerome, who was known as the most beautiful woman in America at the time. She was the daughter of the King of Wall Street, Leonard Jerome. And so he took her on a high-speed carriage ride. Unfortunately, he lost control and it caused the carriage to overturn. It could have killed them both, but luckily they emerged bruised, but fine. Dodged a bullet. Dodged a bullet. Now, this is lucky that he didn't kill her or him at this moment because... I don't dare to say, but the entire survival of Western Europe could have been different if this had have gone the other way because Janine Jerome would grow up to be Lady Jeanette Churchill, the mother of Sir Winston Churchill. <laughs> he almost killed Winston Churchill's <laughs> mother. <laughs> oh, man. I went to the war rooms in London recently. Oh, Four really? Where they used to hang out underground. Where they do all the decision making and the briefings yes, and everything. Uh, Winston Churchill's wife not well liked underground. No, nah. was my takeaway. She was very pro him, and a lot of them. But he ta- was mad too. Hey, mad. He's a nut. And no, his no, mum no. was mad. She was a real socialite. Oh, yeah, and no. paid him no attention. They're all smoking cigars and uh, you know they're drinking at the drop of the hat. Yeah. But my favourite thing out of the whole thing, and couldn't take my eyes off Winston Churchill's chamber pot. <laughs> I don't know why, but that to me was I just all I couldn't get the image of him just sitting at the end of the bed with a cigar in his mouth. I just pissing into a pot. Don't you love how he just always drunk all the way through the wall? Sure. It's like if you ran the wall. (laughs) I tell you what though, they didn't treat him very well. The minute the war was over, how's that for a thank you? Yeah, they voted him out. You're out. Hey, thanks. We've got it now. Yeah, we're good now. Within like Oh, it was like a year or something. Yeah, it was it's like, like yeah, it was forty-six, wasn't it? Oh, you did a good job. Well done. Hey. Thanks. <laughs> Unbelievable. Anyway, sorry about so that. So he almost killed Winston Churchill's mum. Now, another example of his antics was one night he was dining at the New York Union Club, which is that very exclusive club, when a fire started. Okay. Uh, he was very drunk, so he jumped up and leapt into action and he began directing the firefighters on how to properly tackle the blaze. Now he's drunk and, yeah, going yeah, to, yeah. and they're all going, you idiot. That would have been he won't that. leave them alone. They get so annoyed with his help that they launch him across the street by spraying him with the high-pressure hose. <laughs> the next day, Bennett had no memory of this even happening. He says, why am I wet? <laughs> why are my clothes soaked? And yeah. someone says to him, well, Last night a fire broke out and you were kind of a bit annoying yeah. to the firefighters. 
He laughs and he buys every firefighter in the department a brand new overcoat by way of apology. Apology accepted. (laughs) Exactly. On another occasion, he lost a bet. And so he drunkenly rode a pony through the dining room of a Newport social club, (laughs) prompting them to ban him from life. Hey, he lost the bet. And he followed through. He followed through. So he rode this pony through the dining room. They ban him. He then reacts to the ban. <laughs> he reacts to the ban by buying the building next door, turning it into a social club of his own and inviting all their members to join. <laughs> oh, I love it. I um, love it. Another time he tried to get a seat in his favourite restaurant. Yes. They said, sorry, we're booked. Yeah. And he said, okay, I'll buy the restaurant. And buys the restaurant. <laughs> You bring this cow? <laughs> yep. So they- <laughs> it's incredible. Now, while it seems like he's sort of this, you know, trust fund kid kind of acting like this, he's, like I said, he's, he's very astute behind the scenes. And a lot of this is for show or yeah, for distraction, yeah. right? He used to donate huge amounts of money to charities, um, often just on a whim. If he yes. heard something bad had happened to someone, he's like, here's all the money you need. Yeah. During the panic of 1873, uh, Wall Street panic, he opened a soup kitchen to ensure no one in the city went hungry. Yeah. Because he doesn't do anything in my heart. The soup and the sandwiches handed out were all made at the prestigious Delmonico's <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> so he's not like just so setting up. Chicken a- sandwiches <laughs> and some. So all these people are eating better down. than they've ever eaten it. Like he gets the best restaurant in the city to make the food for the soup kitchen. Now he's a bachelor almost all his life because why wouldn't he be? He's just having a normal well fun. Later in his life, and this is well after all his various yachting stuff has sort of happened, in 1877 he is engaged to a prominent socialite called Caroline May and then it's suddenly called off. And the reason it's called off, there was some debate, but generally it's believed that he turned up drunk at a party held at her family's house and urinated either into a fireplace piano or a house plant. <laughs> I'm going with piano. (laughs) Please be piano. While the other guests look on shocked. Apparently (laughs) the wedding is over the next day. The event gets Bennett listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for the greatest ever faux pas. (laughs) The Guinness Book of Records used to have things like that. It doesn't now. It's gone downhill in my view. Um, When you don't have greatest engagement faux pas. Gordon was horsewhipped by her brother, who was so angry at him doing this and breaking his ass. He challenges Gordon to a duel, which they do, and they end up having a shootout 12 paces away, but they both miss. Um, and he then moves to Paris after that for a long bit of fun. Yeah. Now, just to wrap up Bennett, we're going to get Bennett comes up through the rest of the story, but I just want to jump ahead in time to his death. Yes. Okay. Because his death in itself is. Interesting. He passed away. Uh, Someone um, urinated into his coffin? Yeah. <laughs> no. He passed away, uh, you know, of old age, basically. Good work. But James Stillman, who's a close friend of his, gets appointed as his um, executor, executor of the world. Yeah. Right? Now, James Stillman and Gordon and James are good friends, and they're friends with two other guys, James Bloss and John William Sterling. So Stillman has become the administrator of the estate. And within a few weeks of Bennett's death and him assuming this, he then dies. So you've got Bennett dying, then you've got Stillman dying. These are all very rich men. 
So then Stillman named Sterling, who he's friends with Bloss and Sterling. Now, Sterling and Bloss are both bankers and engineers and things like that. But the Bloss and Sterling, who we won't get into their whole life there, it was discovered long after they died. They were the most two of the most respected men yes. in New York at the time and everything. No one knew this at the time, but they were in a 50-year homosexual relationship, which at the time was very no-no. Not on. But had gone on forever. And most a lot of people did know like their friends and didn't care, right? Yes. But at the time, they kept it very serious. So they were always written up in the papers as some of the most eligible bachelors of all time. <laughs> Forming all the yeah, ladies. Yeah. So suddenly you find out that Sterling now has executed a both to Stillman's estate, but that also contains now Gordon's estate, estate. Right? Now Sterling's having to look at all of this and he begins his duties of doing this when he dies within a week. Oh, stop it. So now all three, the Bennett estate, the Stillman estate and the Sterling estate, totaling $76 million at the wow. time, all falls to Bloss right. as the executor. And a few weeks after that, he dies. Oh, stop it. This is terrible. And then it just ends up in courts for the and rest of the time. what happens to the money? It just ends up in courts and goes to the various relatives. For, yeah. So even in death, Bennett's life story is bonkers. So we're now going to go back in time a little bit to when Bennett has just become the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club. Sure. Now you've got to remember it was 1857 that they'd been given the America's Cup. Yes. But no one's challenged for it yet because there's been – War, the, the Civil, Civil War, War, and then no one's interested. So with Gordon now as Commodore, they finally get their first ever challenge in 1870 for the America's Cup comes through. And it's a guy by the name of James Lloyd Ashbury. Now, he is British, and he has been inspired by Gordon's Atlantic race. Yep. And actually meets him and becomes friends with Gordon. And he says, I'll challenge will have first ever challenge. So it's, you know, it's a full like 19 years after America had won the race back in there. Now, Ashbury is the son of the founder of the Ashbury Railway Carriage and Iron Company of Manchester. And he's trained as an engineer, joined the family company. His father died. He's inherited all his business and various money. His health's affected by the polluted atmosphere in Manchester. So he moves to the coast and he takes up sailing and he realizes he's got all the money in the world, Ashbury. This is a time when England's moving from aristocracy into these new up-and-coming, you know, magnates who have factories and all this but aren't seen as the aristocracy. They're new money. It's industrialisation. It's industrialisation. And because he's not a marquee, he's not a duke, he's not he's not yeah. landed gentry, he's got all the money in the world but no one, yes. none of the connections. He realises if I take up sailing in a big way, I can join all these exclusive yacht clubs, clubs and it starts to legitimise him. Yes. So he decides to join the Royal Thames and the Royal Harwich and all these sort of things. He writes to the New York Yacht Club and says, I'm challenging for this. I want the America's Cup. So they say, great. So the 1870s America Cup, he sails over in a yacht called the Cambria because you have to challenge it on behalf of a, of a, of a yacht club. Of a yacht club, okay. And so he's challenging for the Royal Thames Yacht Club. And he starts to try and dictate some of the terms to the New York Yacht Club about how the race should be set up because the deed is vagueish. It's only 376 mm. words, you know, the deed that says what it is. So he's saying, I've got the Cambria, you should choose a boat to race against me. The New York Lock Club, and this is where they start to get a bit of a reputation for not always playing fair. <laughs> they don't agree. They say, well, the America won against a fleet. 
you're going to have to do the same. You're going to compete against a fleet of ships, not just one ship. For the right to, to win. Win. Right. So it's America's Cup now is one sh- boat against another. Yes. They say, nah, it's your boat versus 16, 17, 18 of our boats. <laughs> and he says, well, hang on, the America was part of a regatta where everyone was sort of equal. This is different. I'm challenging for a cup. I say, bad luck. Don't come. He says, oh, wow. I'll come. He thinks it's unfair. He decides to come. They enter 17 yachts against his. All from the New York Yacht Club? Yep. <laughs> and he's got one yacht, right? He's very unhappy about that. As well as being outnumbered, when they take off, his ship is the Cambria, is subject to like what's described in the paper, shameful interference by the massive spectator fleet in the confines of the narrow harbour. Wow. So there's all these drunk yeah. people on boats and they basically get in his way. So he places eight terrible. out of the 17 yachts. The America, the original yacht, it had been bought by the Navy. It was raced in this and it came fourth. So it came ahead of him. Right. He's seething deep down. He thinks this is very unfair. But it's seen as a success because 100,000 people sharp on the water to watch it. A reporter said, this writer was an eyewitness and has no hesitation in describing it as a marine spectacle. It was possible for even the smallest boat to be close to the races at the start and finish. Almost everything that could float was there, large steamers, ferry boats, sailing craft of all sorts. There was practically no business in New York that day. So this is like a Captured huge the imagination of the town. So Ashby's not thrilled about this, but because he's nice about it, he gets a great standing from sort of his sportsmanship and being kind. And so yes. actually before he d- leaves back, goes back to UK, he's fated and dined everywhere. Yes. So the, it's a win for him. It's a personally. win for him. The President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, yes. has breakfast with him on his yacht and he leaves the country saying, I'll be back to challenge. He commissions a new yacht straight away called the Livonies, says I'm going to spend a lot more money. But then he starts to think about it and goes, they really were not nice to me. <laughs> he starts to get angry. Yes. So 1871, he challenges again, but he decides that playing nice has got him nowhere. Yes. So from the very start, he starts dictating terms to them. He says, I want a best of seven match race against one ship, not a regatta, not a... He argues that the deed of gift, the rules, are no good, and he asks for an interpretation from George Shiler who wrote them who by this point is, you know, about almost 70. Yes. He's the last surviving member of the original America syndicate. He says, ask him what he thinks the interpretation of the deed should be given he wrote it. So the New York Yacht Club are thrilled with this, but they go, okay, because Shiloh's so respected in the yachting community, they kind of have to. So Shiloh comes back with a verdict saying, I think that any candid person will admit that when the owners of the America sat down to write their letter of gift to the New York Yacht Club, which is talking about him, Mm. they could hardly be expected to dwell upon an elaborate definition of their interpretation of the word match and distinguish from a sweepstakes or a gratter. So he goes on about that. It seems to me that the present ruling of the club to do a fleet renders the American trophy useless as a challenge cup. He agrees with Ashby. Wow. He says it should be best of seven races between two ships. The New York Yacht Club are seething at this, but they have to accept it because he donated the cup to them, right? The founding fathers. He's he's the last remaining too. So Ashby wins this. So the New York Yacht Club say, okay, 
best of seven, one-on-one. He yeah. goes, great. Sales over. They then say, we might swap what ship it is on the day. <laughs> so you've got one ship. Depending on the conditions, we'll, we'll just, pick out we'll our pick, own. So if it's light winds, we'll pick the best in light winds. If it's uh, if it's really a, if it's a calm sea, we'll do this. If it's a rough sea, we'll put another one in. Unbelievable. Ashby is like furious, right? So they start racing. He ends up losing the first two races to Columbia, a ship called Columbia. He then wins the next one, so it's two one. And Columbia is sails are all broken and stuff yeah. from racing, so they swap that swap out for out. another. another it's unbelievable. Ship. Those next two races, the next ship, the Sephora, it wins. He says, "Well, they didn't follow the course properly, and he doesn't accept that they've won." The Americans are saying, "Well, it's four-one. We've won." He's saying, "I don't accept. It's it's really one-one, and I've won the last two. It's really three-one." Yeah. So he says, well, next day I'm showing up on the line and if you've got a ship there, then good. If you don't, I'll sail the course and claim it as a win. They say, you're an idiot, you're dreaming, we're not doing it. <laughs> Bennett, feeling embarrassed as Commodore, puts his own ship against him that day. Yes. They race and I think Bennett actually wins but then Ashby says, well, but that wasn't an official New York Yacht Club yacht so technically I won that one too because I raced against no one. So it's going rapidly downhill. Yes. He writes a letter to them and says, I should have been awarded race two. I won race three. I'd secured two further ones. These are the ones that no one raced against him. So I've actually won the America's Cup. They say, no, we won 4-1. So they can't agree. He writes this furious letter to them. The New York Yacht Club, they ignore it. All they do is write back acknowledging receipt of his letter. (laughs) They then decide to cancel a number of trophies that he donated to them in the previous year. Right. So it's getting very petty. Mm. He goes back to England furious and convinced that the Americans are just cheating to yeah. retain the cup. <laughs> so George Shiler agrees with him and he says to the club, you've kind of disgraced this. This is meant to be an open competition. Yes. It's not about you retaining it at all costs. Yes. If you keep behaving like this, it's got to go backwards at a rate of knots. You need to fix this. Good on him. Ashby writes a whole long letter accusing them of being cheats, mm-hmm. which further. Yeah. He had been made the year before an honorary member of the New York Yacht Club. He's they, kicked out. He's kicked out. <laughs> um, he says if he challenges the cup ever again, he'll bring his legal advisors with him. He never returns to challenge for the cup. He decides it's not worth it. That's enough. He actually turns his mind to politics. He becomes an MP for uh, one term. He then leaves British Parliament and he pursues business opportunities. And leads to disaster when he invests in the South Island of New Zealand for a sheep station, which doesn't make any money. And he ends up poor. He died in 1885 as a gentleman of no occupation. He took his life with an overdose of chlorodyne. Very sad ending to him. But his legacy is absolutely profound on the America's Cup. It's a big story. Because in the end, in the long term, he forced the New York Yacht Club to accept that the format of the America's Cup would be a challenger against a defender. Yes two yachts across roughly seven races. He forced that. His treatment caused a coolness between the English and American yachtsmen that lasted for years. So the English didn't challenge again for years. There you go. It taught the New York Yacht Club that dealing so badly with challenges meant the best yachts didn't show up to challenge you or the best clubs. So it forced them to change their behaviour a fair bit too. The lack of quality that would come to the fore in the next two challenges ram this home 
and we might wrap up here, but when we come back, we're going to see the two weakest challenges ever <laughs> to emerge from the America's Cup. I cannot wait. They've established their attitude pretty early on in the piece. Pretty early on. That became their modus operandi for as long as you can remember. Yeah, it was always. Defense at all costs. Defense at all costs. But this is, they've pushed it at this stage that bit too far and they've got to correct slightly. And we'll see that because in the next few, like I said, no one good wants to show up. <laughs> so they get they get some very bad challenges. Coming. I cannot wait. Titus O'Reilly, you've done it again. We will go again next week. As you know, I've been shamelessly plugging our membership program, Bazaar Plus. And one of the key bits that people are loving is you get an extra episode every week. Here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. A friend of mine who I won't name, this is when we were like, you know, in our early 20s, we both worked at a menswear store, so doing suits and stuff. A <laughs> oh, lot, lot of measuring the inside. Give me some le- warning before you just <laughs> drop one like that. Measuring the inside. <laughs> What's your inside leg, sir? Do you dress to the left or Humphrey! right? <laughs> You're like, would you like Mr. Humphreys? Yeah. Would you, do you oh, dress to so. the left or the right? Don't worry, Sarah, I'll be able to tell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what kind of menswear shop? It was like suits and shirts and everything. Blokes would come in and men don't like to shop. And so the faster you could get them in and out, the more they liked you. Absolutely. You know, Mate, so I've, if you could, I've got the engine running. Yeah, so if you look at them and go, right. I reckon you're a, you know, 42, right. and, they, and they were, they'd be like, oh, and you'd just get them out. We had it the patter down of what we'd say. So we had all these, like, <laughs> the one I always did is because it was a well-to-do area. They'd come in and I'd say, oh, you know, you got kids? And they'd say, oh, yeah. Where are they going to school? And they'd name a couple of very expensive uh, private yes. schools. And I'd say, a lot of sacrifices for mum and dad. <laughs> and they they would just love you for, like, they'd go, oh, yeah, you've got that, you know? Yeah. Like, we had a competition who could get the most cliches in in every single conversation. Do you, do you like... Carry a tape measure, yeah, yeah. like round yep, his shoulders. Yep, yep. had the tape measure around his shoulders. Could you shift a cardigan? Oh yeah, we did. Yeah, car- we had cardigans, and we had uh, like all. I'd the love to be vests. a cardigan model. I'd say you, you look like Do a you vest know, man to me. I put a vest on, and yeah. you said, "Have a look in the mirror, see a feel." I'd need a cue and some chalk, <laughs> and I'd go, "Oh, yes, this will do nicely." What about you? Would wear a cardigan? Like I've never it. seen you in a cardigan. I just feel I'm entering that phase. <laughs> the, the cardigan years. <laughs> I think. And that's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bazaar Plus program. If you're interested in signing up to that and hearing more of it, simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bazaarplus.com.